It is great to be with you this morning. My name is Hardy Reynolds. I serve as a campus minister with a ministry called Reformed University Fellowship at University of Central Florida. It's my second time uh, here, and uh, it really is a privilege for me to preach God's Word uh, this morning. Uh, When uh, people ask me when I visit churches uh, like yours that partner and have a heart for campus ministry, seeing the gospel advanced on uh, campuses uh, across the state of Florida, I try and think of the best ways to kind of give you a picture of the ministry, of what we do uh, on campus. And so oftentimes the question is, how's RUF going? And, And one of my answers is, ask me in 10 years. And what I mean by that is if The students that are involved now in the ministry, if they are um, continuing to walk and grow in grace, grow in their love for the Lord, grow in their knowledge of what it looks like to fellowship with other believers in the church, serving Christ, um, RUF is going to be doing well. Uh, if, if our students are plugged into churches. And so one of the r- things we do is partner with uh, churches like yours who have a heart to see the gospel advanced on college campuses. So part of my update is just a, is a thank you uh, for your, your heart uh, for campus ministry, um, for being willing to invite me to come and share a little bit. Um, I'll share some stories within the sermon to hopefully give you just a picture of kind of what ministry might look like on a college campus. Um, We're going to be in the Gospel of John uh, this morning, specifically John 8, verse 12, and verses 31 through 38. So as you turn there, um, I wanted to tell y'all I actually attend a church called New City Orlando, and so uh, it is um, a a dear church that that I love, and I live right in between church and the campus, and so that puts me in Orlando right next to uh, the executive airport. If you're familiar with Orlando, it's a smaller private airport uh, where people who have their own planes fly in or they're trying to learn how to become a pilot, and so the flight path for all uh, pilots in training is right over my house. Uh, I constantly watch pilots learning how to navigate and fly. And I heard about this kind of troubling um, aspect of learning to fly that's called spatial disorientation. Pilots can experience this when either they are flying at night for the first time or if it's a foggy, cloudy day and they lose sight of the horizon. They actually can start to feel like their gut instincts are leading them to do things with the plane that would cause them to crash. Um, They lose all ability to spatially orient, and if they follow those instincts, they are actually going to crash the plane. In that moment, they need to learn, how do I forego following this gut instinct I have and follow my instruments? Learn what does it look like to really lean in and learn how to navigate based on these instruments. And so in this text, what we're going to see uh, in our passage is, is something that's pretty difficult to see about us, um, to see about ourselves, but something glorious uh, about God. And, and specifically what we're going to see is namely that all of us, all of us walk in darkness until we forego our trust in our own instincts and learn to walk by the light of the world who Jesus is claiming to be in this passage. So we're going to see this in three ways if you're a note taker. Uh, The first way is Jesus as light of the world reveals our hearts. Second, Jesus as light of the world reveals God's heart. And then finally, Jesus as light of the world reveals our way home. So that's where we're headed this morning. But before we open God's word and read it, uh, let me go before him and ask his blessing upon it. So pray with me. 
Jesus, light of the world, uh, we cannot see truth without your light. So we ask that you would shine your light on your word this morning, uh, that we might see rightly, that we might see you rightly in your character and in your work on our behalf, and that your gospel uh, would bring our hearts uh, exactly what they need. You know every story of every person in this room. Uh, I do not, but you do. And so I pray, Lord, that you would uh, disrupt those among us that are too comfortable by the power of your gospel, and those of us um, who are um, too disrupted, that you would comfort us by the power of your gospel. And we pray all of this in your powerful name. Amen. So the passage is John 8, verse 12, and then verses 31 through 38. The word of God. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my true disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So, one of the things that we do need to understand uh, for this passage this morning is kind of the context that Jesus is speaking this bold claim of being the light of the world and this conversations that he's having uh, with the Jews at the time. Many of you might be aware that the um, chapter divisions and the verses that you see in your scriptures are not original to the text. They were added later, and uh, they're really helpful tools to help us navigate and learn scripture, but sometimes they can imply division uh, in the text where division is not meant to be. And it's similar here because in John 7 and 8, uh, it's all within the context of this Jewish feast, the Feast of Booths. So that's the context that Jesus is making this claim and having uh, this conversation. So we need to understand, what is this feast? What is this feast of booths? Well, one commentator puts it this way, that this was a Jewish festival, and uh, there were three of these that were obligatory for every Jewish male. Uh, there was the spring Passover festival, or uh, the festival or feast of unleavened bread. There's the summer Pentecost festival. And then this present autumn festival, the Festival of Booths. Now, the Passover celebrated the gift of the Exodus at the Red Sea. Uh, the second one, the Pentecost, the gift of the law at Mount Sinai. And then this present one, the gifts of provision that God provided for His people uh, in the wilderness. And this present festival was called the Feast of Booths because Israel, in celebrating and remembering God's provision, was asked to leave their homes and go live in booths or tents. Uh, and they would either sleep on their roofs or in their yards or in, in any free space to remember how God had provided for them for 40 years as they traveled in the wilderness. And if you remember, they were provided in miraculous 
ways. They were provided for 40 years manna from heaven. Uh, They were provided water from the rock. Uh, And they were provided at night with this fiery cloud that would guide them so they would not uh, get lost. This is what the provision is that they're celebrating. It's into this context of this feast that Jesus makes these claims. In fact, in John 6, um, he has just performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000. It's into that context. He says, I'm the bread of life. At the end of chapter 7, he's claiming to be uh, the water of life, that anyone comes to him, rivers of living water will flow out of him. And then here, he claims to be the light of the world. And so Jesus is saying everything that y'all are celebrating about this feast, everything it points to about God's provision, actually is found in me. I am the fulfillment of this. And so it is a bold and audacious claim that Jesus is making. And what John is trying to get us to see is exactly what the people here were trying to understand at the very beginning of this feast. Who is this guy? What are we to make of him? John 7, uh, verse 12 puts it this way. They're, they're gathering at this feast, and they're wondering where Jesus is, and they're talking about him. And they say, and there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Differing opinions on what to make of this Jesus. We're invited to the same thing, to make up our minds about who do we think Jesus is. That's what John is trying to get us to see. And he wants us to consider this claim as Jesus being the light of the world. Think about that. Jesus is claiming to be the light. This is an exclusive claim. It's an incredibly disruptive claim. Uh, What what Jesus is saying, it it might sound elementary, is what, what does light do? It allows us to see. If, if, you know, storm really picked up and shut all the power out and it was completely dark um, and, and you had to find the exit, uh, you would bump into people, you would trip over um, the pews, you would uh, be lost. You would not be able to orient. Uh, and so what Jesus is saying here is, is it's only through me that you will be able to see reality rightly. It is through me that you will be able to see. But also, he's saying an incredibly inclusive claim. He is not only the light, but he's the light for the world, for, for all who will come to him and see reality through him. It's an incredible invitation uh, that we have. But what John wants us to see first here is that this claim, being the light of the world, reveals our own hearts. Because um, by comparison or contrast, we have a tendency to walk in darkness. We don't walk in the light. All of humanity walks uh, in darkness apart uh, from Christ. And we must preach this message uh, as Christ preached it. Commentator Bruner uh, puts it this way, it's part of the church's responsibility, as it was a part of Jesus' responsibility, to bear witness not only to the good news of God, but also to the bad news of the world, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. This takes courage and, of course, tact and wisdom. And part of that responsibility of a faithful church proclamation following Jesus is to tell the world that we need salvation. We need it deeply and even desperately. A too world-friendly ministry is faithless and finally cowardice. The foulness of the world is not only its morality, but here in John's gospel, and especially its proud self-sufficiency. 
It's the belief that I, that I can test everything, including God, by my own standards and by its evidence that I can decide who God says uh, he is. Rather than following Jesus, the, the, the father-accredited person, and so, what, what we need to see here is the disruption, the bad news that the gospel brings, that we are all in darkness. We all follow. Um, we, we've got to be willing to, to see both sides of the gospel. Oftentimes, I'll ask students what they're learning at RUF or um, kind of what has stood out to them. And, and one student last semester, right at the end, told me uh, that he'd never thought of the gospel in this way, that it, it could not only comfort, but it could disrupt that it could challenge his comfort levels. It could call him to something more. Uh, for him, the gospel had been uh, something that I add on to kind of make my life better. If it, if it offers me comfort, if it offers me satisfaction, then I'll kind of add that to my life. But what he was starting to hear was, no, the, the gospel actually can disrupt even in the places uh, that you might be too comfortable. Um, so the gospel has to do both. And one of the challenges doing campus ministry is kind of defining uh, what we mean by this need, this darkness. Jesus here equates uh, darkness with slavery. Uh, We we read in verse uh, 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So he's equating sin with slavery to having a master a master besides him. That's what sin is to Jesus here. And we need to have a proper understanding. We need to have a proper definition of what sin is to really get the gospel. And it, it, it's one of my biggest obstacles as campus minister to try and figure out what do students understand sin to be. I was having a conversation with a student at one of our outreach events on campus last week, actually, and he had uh, cross earrings that he was wearing. So I asked him if he was a Christian. Uh, and he said, well, I'm, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. And so we got into a conversation, we were talking, and uh, the conversation led to, uh, well, well what do you, how do you understand sin and evil in the world? And he goes, sin, I don't, I don't like that word. I don't, I don't use that word. And I said, so, so how do you understand sin to be? So that kind of continued the conversation. And, and he really, he, he had an understanding of sin that's not uncommon among students. It's, it's kind of how... Jerry Lewis is a country singer from the 50s um, that there's a scene in the movie Walk the Line with Johnny Cash, and it's all these musicians in a car, and they're on tour, and they're trying to figure out what, what city did we just leave, and where are we going to? They're exhausted, and Jerry Lewis is in the front of the car, and he kind of sarcastic, sarcastically says, well, I can tell you where everyone in this car is going. We're all going to hell. We're going to hell for the songs that we sing. And he goes on to sarcastically say that God gave us this apple, you see. And he said, don't touch it. He said, don't touch it when you feel like it. Don't take a nibble when you're hungry. He said, don't touch it. Don't think about touching it. Don't sing about touching it. Don't think about singing about touching it. Don't touch it. And that often is the way students understand sin. It's just God saying, here's the rule, don't break it. And while sin is transgressing rules that God has given to us, it's so much more than that. Uh, Because what that definition, that understanding of sin can 
kind of correlate to in students' minds, and often, if we're honest with ourselves in our own minds, uh, is just the, the small rule that I have to break for a moment of freedom, a small rule that I have to transgress to get true enjoyment. So it has more of an association with our word indulgence. I just, I just you know, if I break curfew from my parents, I can get to stay out and stay out late when the fun really happens. So just a small rule. Um, if, if I drink underage, I'm, I'm just breaking the small rule. That, that's where it's, it's just the, the price I have to pay for a little bit of freedom. Oh, I was bad today. I ate something I really know wasn't good for me, but it's, it, it was an indulgence. And so when we understand sin as, as breaking, simply breaking a rule of doing something that God tells us not to, um, we can think about sin in this way. But when in reality, sin is talking about a whole posture of our hearts. It's a propensity. It's a, it's a slavery. It's a darkness uh, that we walk in. And so I shared with this student another definition from an author uh, that I've read of, of sin is the human propensity to mess things up. That's what sin is. It's our propensity, no, no matter our intentions, to mess things up. And so as I talked with him about things that he valued, relationships, moods, promises, promises that he had every intention on keeping that he had broken, he started to understand like, oh yeah, what is that that leads me to violate those values over and over again despite the fact that I never had an intention to. It's sin. It's the propensity to mess things up. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, is it's a slavery. It's not just something passive that happens to us, but it's something that we actively choose over and over again, and we're mastered by it. We're stuck in it. Probably one of the um, most obvious pictures of this is addiction. Because if, if we understand sin is just simply breaking the rules, um, we're not going to name it for what it is. Because if students thought it was really a problem, they, they actually start using language like addiction or eating disorder. Um, they, they start saying, that's when I really have an issue. And what Jesus is saying, no, sin is this slavery, this darkness that we walk in. And addiction is a picture of that. There's a movie where Denzel Washington plays a veteran pilot uh, who's also an alcoholic and a drug addict, and he gets on a flight um, after a night of partying, and he's still, he's still drunk, he's still high, and the plane breaks on him at, at 14,000 feet or whatever it was. And he miraculously lands this plane, uh, saving a majority of uh, the crew and all of the passengers. But he was drunk while doing it. And so, because it's a major event, uh, this huge investigation is happening, and he's got to uh, kind of hide, uh, hide out, like lay low for a little while, but he cannot stop drinking. And he's under investigation for this major event, and he cannot control his drinking. And along the way in this movie, he meets another addict who is trying to get healthy, trying to get clean, and she started this journey of healing. And so, at one point in the movie, she approaches him when he's been drinking and she says, Wit, you need help. And his response, anger. He says, no, I choose to drink. To which she responds, oh yeah, it doesn't seem like a lot of choice going on here. 
He gets angry. He gets defensive. She's challenging his control, his sense of mastery. And so he goes on to say, I choose to drink. I have an ex-wife and a son who won't talk to me. You know why? Because I choose to drink. What the picture is there is what he thought he had mastery over, what he thought he had control over, has at some point gained control over him. This happens in a hundred different ways, not always as obvious or dramatic as addiction. For, for students, particularly freshmen on campus, uh, the opinions of others can become a master. Uh, they show up to campus and they're trying to figure out which of my stories do I tell from high school, which ones do I leave out, which parts of my personality do I uh, present, which ones do I try and hide or get rid of. When I'm with my Christian friends, I'm going to be really uh, spiritual and kind of impressive. Uh, but when I'm with my other friends, I'm going to be spontaneous in the life of the party. Uh, when I talk to my parents, I want to present myself as hardworking and responsible. Um, and at some point, they think they're controlling the opinions of others when, in fact, the opinions of others have come to control them. They're mastered by it. It can happen for accomplishments. Um, if I get into the right major, if I get into the right program, if I sign up for the right club, or if I gain a certain position in the club, if I hang out with the right people that will advance my resume, then I'll be able to be on the road to the accomplishments I want. And so their schedule, they think they're controlling all these different relationships, these achievements that they're, that they're going for, but their, their schedule at some point becomes a master over them. It's, it's the way that sin works. It becomes a master. It's controlling. And that's what Jesus is saying as the light of the world. He reveals our hearts. He reveal, reveals our darkness, that we, left on our own, will walk in darkness, that we need his light to come in and to rescue us. So what do we do? What do we do when we experience Jesus' light coming in, breaking into that darkness? Well, there's a couple ways that you can experience um, being exposed. You can, you can have a light shown on you, and it can feel like exposure, kind of like a prisoner running, trying to escape, and the spotlight's shown on him right before he gets to the wall, and he's frozen. Being exposed can feel like that. Or it can feel like a prisoner coming out of cell into uh, freed life for the first time, and the warmth of the sun out of his cell actually feels like freedom. So, so which way will the light of the world feel on your heart today? Well, it will depend on our second point and how you understand it. Our second point is Jesus' light of the world reveals God's heart. How you understand God's heart that Jesus reveals as the light of the world will determine how you experience his light shining on you. John, in writing this gospel, he wants us to understand from the very beginning of this gospel what is the heart of God through sending the light of the world. In his famous prologue, starting in verse 9, chapter 1, he says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So this fullness, this fullness of light that this light of the world, Jesus, brings, it belongs to all, to all who believe in his name and therefore have the right to become children of God. And John makes this clear at the very beginning of how, the how this takes place. He says here, it's not of blood. In other words, who your mom and your dad are. It's not of, it's not of, uh, of genealogy. It's not of blood. It's not of the will of the flesh. In other words, how hard you work to get, get it. It's not of the will of man, how much you want it. It's not of any of those things. It's not based on any of that. What it's based on, in other words, is does God want you? In the gospel, that's what we get to hear. We get, a, get to hear a word of light that breaks into our darkness that says, I am here and I want you. He's moved in to our darkness. He shines a light. And so we need to understand that God, who is light, has moved in, in the incarnation, taking on human flesh into our human experience, walked and lived in this world of darkness perfectly, sinlessly, walked alongside his disciples, teaching them, never giving in to temptation, living sinlessly. This was his heart, was to come to a world walking in darkness. But where we see the heart of God most clearly, Jesus is the light of the world, is, is actually on the cross in his death. Because on the cross, Jesus is the light of the world, died in darkness. For three hours on the cross, the sky turned black. And in that three hours, the full wrath of God was poured out on him for the sins of the world, for the sins of you and me, for all of the darkness that we have done, the harm that we've done others, for all the darkness that has been done to us, all of that darkness was poured out on him. The light of the world died in darkness for you and me so that we do not have to walk in darkness any longer. He has freed us from darkness that we might walk in his light. And that's our final point, is, is what, after we understand that, after we understand the light of the world's heart for us, where is he leading us? He leads us home. So Jesus' light of the world reveals our way home. Verse 31 puts it this way, If you abide, or if you make your dwelling in, in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Scripture gets at this idea of guidance in a couple of different ways. Another place is in Psalm 119 when it says, Your word, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. For the children of God, when you've received that gift of knowing that you are a child of, of God, that he has moved in and forgiven all of your darkness, that light becomes a way. It becomes a guide. It becomes something that instructs us, that we embrace, that we long for, that we long to walk in his ways that he reveals to us. That's what it means to become a child of God. It gives us something solid to walk on in this dark world. It gives us something to orient ourselves in the midst of confusion and chaos. So we welcome it. He reveals sure footing for the Christian, for the child of God. We have a bike path right next to my house, and uh, we have a Wednesday night Bible study that one day I rode my bike to campus, and so I was riding back at night. And on this bike path, there's woods on either side. It's pitch black, 
and all I have is my, my little bike lamp. Um, I can see about six feet in front of me. And I've ridden this bike path a lot, but I don't trust myself to ride it in the dark. And so that light was absolutely a gift to me. Because as soon as I would have turned it off, I would have wound up in the woods, wound up hurting myself. And so for the Christian, that light is something that we welcome, that we follow in every season of life. And you will, and I will, stray off that path. Uh, But a professor of mine would have this quote that would say, blessed is the man or woman who never stops starting. Blessed is the one who constantly gets back on the path, who constantly finds the light and takes that next step, believing and trusting that Christ, as the light of the world, has a heart for you that does not want you to walk in darkness and will give you the strength to follow and take that step into his light until he leads you finally and fully home. That's his call. Remember the context of this text. It's in this Feast of Booths. He's talking to people who are living in tents. It's the last day of the feast. They're about to go back into their homes. And what Jesus is wanting them to understand is, remember, know this, that when you go into your home, you are not truly home. You're still living in tents. Unless you find your life your home, make your dwelling. Unless you abide in me, you will not be home. Abide in me. Make your dwelling in my word. Follow me in my light, and I will lead you home. This is the hope of the Christian heart, that he has forgiven our darkness and that he promises to lead us until he welcomes us into the new heavens and new earth where there is no darkness, there is no shadow, there is no sun because he is the light. His presence uh, will be lights upon our hearts and we will not have a memory of death and darkness and it will banish all those shadows on your heart. That is his promise, that he will lead you home, but we're not home yet. So until we are, we must follow him, the light of the world. Pray with me.